This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we're going to be hearing from Pascal Robitaille, who's a clinical coordinator of Stella, on the recent striking down of anti-prostitution laws by the federal court. And we'll also be speaking with Diana Lombardi, the coordinator at the Fédération des Femmes du Québec, who is one of the main organizers of the World March of Women. And we'll also be speaking from Ava Golinger, who is an international award for journalism recipient. She is going to be speaking about the Latin American elections. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of October 7th, 2010. from El Salvador living in Canada says unfair anti-terrorism rules will force him and his family to leave Canada after 14 years in this country. Jose Figueroa supported the underground Ferabundo Marti National Liberation Front, or FMLN, opposition during El Salvador's civil war in the 1980s. The government has said that association makes Figueroa a security risk and therefore ineligible to stay in Canada. Since their arrival in 1996, Figueroa and his wife have had three children. All are Canadian citizens. Opposition continues to grow to Enbridge's proposed bitumen pipeline from Alberta to the northern coast of British Columbia, with municipalities and First Nations jointly opposing the venture. Last week, the Union of British Columbia Municipalities officially opposed the proposed Northern Gateway pipeline at its annual convention, and resolved to urge the federal government to ban bulk oil tanker traffic off Queen Charlotte Sound. The proposed 1,175-kilometer pipeline would run bitumen from northeastern Alberta across the Rocky Mountains to Kitimat, B.C., where oil tankers would transport the product to Asian and North American markets. Opponents say the 525,000-barrel-per-day line could devastate land and river economies in the case of a spill. The Australian corporation BHP Billiton's proposed takeover of the Saskatchewan Potash Corp could reduce government revenues by at least $2 billion over the next 10 years, says the Conference Board of Canada. The think tank reports that if Billiton or any new owner adopted a high production strategy, potash prices would tumble and corporate taxes and royalties could be reduced by $5.7 billion over a decade. The report said BHP is unlikely to pursue this strategy, but it's more likely if China's state-owned Sinochem Corp buys the Saskatchewan-based fertilizer company. The Saskatchewan Potash Corp controls over half the world's potash, a major component of fertilizer. A historian at Wellesley College has uncovered evidence that U.S. government researchers deliberately infected hundreds of Guatemalans with syphilis and gonorrhea in the 1940s in experiments conducted without the subject's permission. Details of the study were uncovered by medical historian Susan Reverby. The U.S. State Department spokesperson P.J. Crowley said the Obama administration has apologized to the Guatemalan government. 
Wired.com has revealed a shell company run by private security company Blackwater has won a piece of a five-year, $10 billion State Department contract to provide security services to diplomatic missions around the world. The shell company, International Development Solutions, is at least the 34th front company formed by Blackwater to help it win government contracts. The U.S. midterm elections are on the course to become the most expensive in history next month, estimated at well over $5 billion. Democrats are expected to face electoral disaster in many states with Barack Obama battling to save his presidency. The Republican campaign has been bolstered by large donations from big corporations whose spending power has been unleashed by a Supreme Court ruling earlier this year providing anonymity for donors. The estimated $5 billion dwarfs the $1 billion spent on the White House race. Polls suggest the Democrats face their biggest election loss since 1994, losing control of the House of Representatives to the Republicans. The Ecuadorian government will review and rewrite parts of a new austerity law that sparked a violent police rebellion last week, according to a senior minister. Policy Minister Doris Solis also told news agency routers that President Rafael Correa would not dissolve Congress and rule by decree, as he had reportedly threatened to do, until new elections have been held. Last Thursday, Mr. Correa had to be rescued by the army after angry police officers held him captive at a hospital for 12 hours. The police officers were protesting against a proposed law that would cut benefits for public servants. International press freedom groups condemned Mr. Correa's decision to halt local radio and TV independent broadcasts during the unrest and said many journalists were injured while trying to cover the police protests. Geert Wilders, the far-right Dutch politician, has gone on trial in the Netherlands on charges of inciting anti-Muslim hatred. Appearing at the Amsterdam court on Monday, Wilders appealed for freedom of expression. He is facing five counts of giving religious offense to Muslims and inciting hatred and discrimination against Muslims and people of non-Western immigrant origin, particularly Moroccans. He risks up to a year in jail or a $10,000 fine for his comments if convicted. Wilder's trial comes two days after the Dutch government approved a coalition agreement with his far-right Freedom Party. The Christian Democrat Party voted on Saturday to cooperate with the Freedom Party, removing another hurdle to forming a conservative Dutch government. South African government ministers are due to sign service delivery agreements to ensure that pledges such as providing electricity and running water to poor communities become reality. The country's Minister for Performance Monitoring and Evaluation, Collins Chibane, said that the deals would start to be signed this week. President Jacob Zuma's African National Congress Party, which has ruled South Africa since the end of apartheid in 1994, has been criticized for failing to provide the country's poor population with housing, health facilities, schools, and sanitation. The head of France's CGT, Rail Workers Union, has threatened to launch the first open-ended strikes over government pension reforms, which push the retirement age from 60 to 62. National Union chiefs met to discuss strategy after a fourth wave of nationwide street marches, but the main flashpoint was near the southern port city of Marseille, where dock workers prevented about 40 ships from reaching shore. Unions say 2.9 million people took part in large street protests last week. 
The high turnouts have clearly heartened the unions, even if many analysts believe the protest movement will not force Sarkozy into retreat. The Greek government has announced new, tougher austerity measures in its 2011 draft budget. The government said it would reduce the budget deficit below the target set by the International Monetary Fund earlier this year when they bailed Greece out. The new target will require new taxes and further spending cuts. The aim is to convince investors that Greece's finances are under control. New austerity measures will affect profitable businesses as well as consumers through new property and gambling taxes. Earlier this year, austerity measures brought in by the government led to violent protests on the streets of Athens. And those are your alert headlines for the week of October 7th, 2010. And here is Around the Left in Seven Days. This Thanksgiving weekend, support migrant workers and allies who will be marching from Leamington to Windsor to call attention to the living and working conditions of migrant workers who grow and process our food, especially for holidays of overconsumption like Thanksgiving. Migrant workers are marching to demand status, an end to exorbitant recruitment fees, better housing, safe working conditions, and an end to racism and sexism in the workplace. You can help by providing a donation, marching with the workers, or spreading the word of this march. To register as a demonstrator or to get more info, email pilgrimage to freedom at gmail.com. Join the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly for a discussion about queer politics and social movements, the left and anti-capitalism. Meet in the back room of the Regal Beagle Pub in Toronto on October 8th at 7pm. The 5th Assembly and one-year anniversary of the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly will be held on October 16th at 9am at the Steelworkers Hall in Toronto. All members and supportive observers are welcome. Registration is mandatory. To register or to get more information, email workingclassfightback at gmail.com. Real Aid, True Solidarity, is an anti-war benefit for Afghanistan and Palestine featuring Malale Joya, former member of Afghanistan's parliament. With the Canadian government threatening to extend Canada's support of the occupation of Afghanistan beyond 2011, this evening is an important chance to hear directly from an Afghan woman about the war. Funds raised from this event will go to the Canadian boat to Gaza and Malalai Joya's Defence Committee, which provides financial support to a free medical clinic in Farah province in Afghanistan. The benefit is on October 12th at 7 at W2 in Vancouver. Email stopwar at resist.ca for more info. Malale Joya will also be speaking in Calgary on October 10th at the University of Calgary. Tickets for this talk are $10 in advance or 12 at the door. Email acsa at ucalgary.ca for more info. The second lecture of a three-part study series covering Bolivia in Transition will continue Sunday, October 17th at the Centre for Social Justice in Toronto. This second session will cover extractive industries and Bolivia's internal challenges. The final lecture on Sunday, October 31st, will examine the U.S. offensive against Bolivia and the Latin American peoples. Email TorontoBoliviaSolidarity at gmail.com for more information. All sessions start at 2 o'clock p.m. On October 14th, the Winnipeg New Socialist Group is hosting a panel entitled Anti-Muslim and Anti-Migrant Racism, 
what they are, and how to fight them. The event will feature three presentations followed by an open discussion. Panelists include Bilan Arti on Quebec's Bill 94, Zach Saltis presenting a socialist analysis of how anti-migrant and anti-Muslim racism relates to the current economic crisis, and Lisa Stepnuck on the politically motivated panic about Tamil migrants in BC. The panel will begin at 7 o'clock p.m. at the Magnus Eliasson Recreation Centre in Winnipeg. And that has been Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of October 7th, 2010. Stand by, because coming up next will be our interview with Pascal Robitaille. Pascal Robitaille is the author of, St- of the article Stella, Sex Workers Get Organized that will appear as part of a special issue of Canadian Dimension magazine on the new feminist revolution. She holds a master's degree in sexology and she's worked for several years with incarcerated women and has recently taken up the position of clinical coordinator at Stella, so, uh, Pascal, welcome to Alert. Hello. Now, uh, first of all, could you maybe just explain a little bit about um, your role at uh, Stella's and what Stella's does? Okay. Well, first, uh, Stella is a peer outreach organization for women and transvestite and transsexuals working in the sex industry. So what we do is we go uh, reach the, the woman where they're at either on the street, either in crack houses, peep shows, saunas, uh, strip clubs, massage parlors, in-call uh, agencies, motels. Uh, if the women work from their place, we sometimes go and visit them at home. And basically what we do, we have a mandate of uh, HIV prevention, violence prevention, uh, so we give a lot of condom. We have a bad trick list so the girls can uh, have concrete um, concrete ways to look like a tattoo, phone numbers, license plates to try to avoid aggressors going on. And, um, yes, one part of what we do also is outreach with women in prison where we do a lot of uh, sex health uh, activities. Okay, so uh, you know, given that uh, that that perspective, that uh, sort of on the street perspective, how do you welcome the uh, the judgment by Judge Susan Himmel on uh, the uh, unconstitutionality of our existing prostitution laws? I salute her courage first and for all, because we knew that going in this direction, saying we need to do something different to take care of the safety of the woman or Canadian woman involved in the sex trade. We have had a picton uh, causing a lot of damage and many disappearances and many murders. So we really need now to think about sex workers' safety and listen to their point of view about what can be done to improve your safety at work. And that's what Judge Himmel uh, finally did. And now that it's been put in writing, I don't think that in the future people will analyze prostitution without this great criteria of safety of the woman involved in the sex trade. Because it's, uh, with the, the police and the taxi drivers, is the three most dangerous profession in, in this country. Well, I, I, could you maybe just uh, elaborate? How is it exactly that uh, this... Uh move by the, the Judge Himmel is going to help these uh, 
vulnerable women? Well, at the moment, well, the law, the way it was made, it says, like, it, it's allowed. It's not illegal to sell or to buy sex. It's never been illegal in Canada. But the law was telling us, uh, as long as you don't do it outside, and, or as long as you don't do it inside, we're okay with the ID. <laughs> so basically, Judge Himmel came and to correct this uh, incoherence that we have in our uh, in our law. Uh, if we think that the brothels, which by the law are called the body house, are the safest place for the girls to work because they control the environment and they working more than one person together or having the right to uh, hire hire a bodyguard and some safety. Uh, other safety things uh, it makes this job a lot safer. This is what we see already in massage parlors. There's a lot less violence going on in uh, in call uh, escort agencies. There's a lot less violence that going in the street actually. But we it's criminal. So whenever a girls get, get raped in one of those places. What happens today is they don't want to go to the police because they don't want the police to know where they're at, so they come the week after that and bust the place, so everyone loses their job. So at the moment, it really is a barrier to, to go and to denounce the violent offenders that are out there in the streets. Mm. Are there maybe some circumstances where uh, it, it might have been... Uh advantageous to leave the laws as they were for instance uh, things like uh, have it when you have abusive pimps and uh, like even with the uh, making it easier to uh, for women to go forward some can't and uh, there are uh, there are um, some provisions that were in touch and that that were in challenge uh, with with this uh, charter challenge such as uh, anything that touch uh, child prostitution, minor sex abuse, uh, it's out of the question. We're only talking about consensual adults. When we're talking about coercion, there's, uh, the judge found, and we're, that's what we, uh, we, we find also, there are a lot of other laws that can cover a type of abuse, the same one that a woman in the situation of uh, conjugal violence would use. There's no specific law for conjugal violence, but uh, hitting, tre- uh, treading the life, uh, trying to kill someone, it's all those things, rape, uh, extortion, they are already in the law. So exactly for, for the same case on a woman with vi- conjugal violence, we don't need a specific law. We will use those laws that are working very well. The problem with the proxenetism law was that it was forbidding us to hire people essential for work, such as drivers, receptionists, everyone were criminalized as pimps. So the judge said it's not because you take uh, sex workers' money that it's exploitative. It needs to be exploitative for for it to be. Mm. Well... There, there does remain, for instance, uh, the, the conservative government has uh, said that they're going to appeal this decision, and uh, some have made the argument that uh, it might uh, enable more uh, human trafficking. I, I, I think you, you may have addressed those concerns to a certain extent, but, but what, what do you say to, to these government ministers and other people in the society who figure that uh, this has been uh, a bad step for, uh, for, for women? Well, we we are concerned also uh, with dead bondage, coercion, or human trafficking, but those things tend 
to happen uh, in the underground setting more than uh, when it's more legitimate and more public. Um, so in other places, such as New Zealand, there hasn't, where it's decriminalized already since 2003, there hasn't been uh, new cases of traffic or more than what we're seeing right now. If the sex industry would not be so fearful of letting outsiders in, because if they would not be criminalized, uh, let's say for us outreach workers, when we have uh, easy access to uh, all those working place, it's so much easier for us to spot if someone should not be there and to intervene around those issues. If we have the trust of agency owners, they will come to us and tell us, well, someone asked me to buy one of my girls, like this is a bad client, please do something about him. So we will work in collaboration much better uh, in, in something more open than something hidden underground where even us health workers have a hard time finding them. I, I'm uh, just about out of time now. Could you maybe just answer one more question? These sorts of criticisms coming from the government and, and other uh, maybe more uh, conservative elements of our society, the, the resistance to uh, embracing uh, this, these changes, what do you think it says about our society's attitude towards sex and the commodification of sex? Well, I guess prostitution is the last space where uh, consensual sex between two adults is still criminalized. We decriminalize homosexuality and gay sonas, and we decriminalized a few years ago swingers club. So this is the next step. It's the last thing in the name of protecting the girls. But what the sex workers are saying, it's not protecting us. It's marginalizing us, those laws. Those laws that are supposed to help us actually harms us. And that's what the judge recognized. Well, uh, Pascal, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Alert. Thank you. And that was uh, Pascal Ropetay, and she joined us from uh, Quebec. Diana Lombardi is the coordinator at the Fédération des Femmes du Québec. The Fédération des Femmes du Québec has been among the main organizers of the World March of Women, which is just completing the 2010 march as we speak. So um, on the line with me is Diana Lombardi. Welcome to Alert, Diana. Oh, thank you. So where in the world is this uh, March of Women taking place? Um, well, the World March of Women is a feminist movement uh, that accounts for over 4,000 groups from 150 countries around the world. And this year marks the third worldwide action of the World March of Women um, since March 8th, the International Women's Day, uh, which was the kickoff for the World March. About 52 countries around the planet have mobilized more than 38,000 women in different activities. So the countries are all over the planet, ranging from South Africa to England, uh, Bangladesh, Cameroon, El Salvador, Turkey, and the list goes on. And obviously here in Canada and Quebec. Um, and um, in all these countries, women are marching for a better world under the slogan, um, women on the march until we are all free. Okay. So this year, October 17th, uh, marks the closing of the events of the World March in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and uh, where their delegates from around the world will gather to support women in DRC who battle every day against violence, sexual assault, and war. And we're expecting that maybe uh, two, uh, around 2,000 uh, women will be able to gather there for, um, for the event. 
And simultaneously, around the planet, uh, women will also organize their own actions in solidarity with our sisters in DRC. Okay. Um, now, could you uh, just remind us, how did the, uh, the march get started in the first place? Uh, I understand that the first march was in 2000 and that uh, uh, your group in Quebec was, had a pretty instrumental role in getting it uh, launched. Yes, it's true. Um, the story dates back to 1995 when um, the FSQ organized uh, a march, the March Against Poverty, which was called Dupé des Roses, which translates to Bread and Roses. And it was a march to combat women's poverty. Um, from that uh, march, which was a great excess, success, uh, it emerged a desire to create an international movement. And it was quite a gamble, actually, at the time to uh, try and... Uh, to, to, to try and do such a such a project, but it, it succeeded because in 1998 uh, the first international meeting took place in Montreal, and 140 delegates from about 65 countries attended. So I guess that we uh, we did succeed uh, in our in our um, in our endeavors that seemed to be quite great. So since then there was the first worldwide action that you had mentioned that was in the, the year 2000, the World March of Women that a lot of people know about. And then in 2005, we adopted the Women's Global Charter for Humanity, which was um, adopted internationally and has uh, 31 affirmations based on five key values for the feminist movement, um, which are equality, justice, freedom, peace, and solidarity. And that chart traveled around the world, relayed from nation to nation in 2005. And still today, the basis of those values um, is, um, is, is what we use with, on, even today for a call out to a large-scale march this year. Um, the, where, where, may I ask where the, in Canada, where, where is the march uh, taking place? Well, in Quebec, um, there, um, the march will be taking place definitely here in Quebec. Um, elsewhere in Canada, I know that in Winnipeg, um, especially with the, with the Rebels movement, um, there will be certain uh, activities that are going on, and since 8th March, that was the kickoff, there have been different activities. But um, here in Quebec, uh, on, on March 8th, um, several thousand uh, people took to the streets in Montreal in a great demonstration to uh, launch the, uh, the activities for the year and to present our demands to our governments uh, for the World March of Women. And then the march itself will take place uh, next week from the, in October, from the 12th to the 17th of October. Um, it will uh, begin from the 12th to the 16th with activities going on all around the province and then really end on the 17th in Rimouski. And each day of uh, action kind of represents um, our action areas and our demands that are, uh, the action areas were adopted internationally and the demands are pretty much adapted to each nation. Hmm. Um, just a quick overview of the, of the action areas, for example, there is one on women in work and women's economic autonomies or demanding uh, ur urgent anti-poverty measures. Um, the other one is on common good and uh, access to resources, where we are trying to preserve the, uh, the, the nature of our, of, our, uh, of our common good so it doesn't become privatized and have increased rates. Um, the third one is on violence against women, uh, where which was pretty much... Um, our demands are pretty much around abortion and access to abortion, where, whether it be free of cost or also properly um, offered, and that's a demand we have on the, uh, to the Canadian government. But on the provincial level, we also are working so that there is certain legislation on, um, on, uh, on uh, advertising, advertising practices. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about uh, sexist commercials or billboards or what have you. And 
uh, demanding an introduction or reintroduction to, uh, to sex education courses in schools so that they have, they have an egalitarian approach and a non-sexist and non-heterosexist approach. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another uh, action area which was considered a priority this year uh, across the world is peace and demilitarization, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is also why we chose the Congo as a, more of a symbolic area to hold the closing events. And uh, pretty much it's pretty straightforward, and the, we are demanding that the Quebec government prohibits military recruitment in, in our educational institutions, and we demand that the Canadian government uh, immediately withdraw its troops from Afghanistan. Yeah, now I guess that kind of reminds me of a, like, the, the, uh, the women's struggle, uh, it, it will tend to vary from country to country. I mean, obviously, the uh, the priorities for the women's movement in downtown Montreal would be different from those in rural Afghanistan. Do you mm-hmm. see any potential challenges in trying to maintain a, a unified movement while trying to address these varied, uh, diverse uh, the diversification of the local uh, priorities? Well, of course, it has its challenges just from. Uh, you know, the, us, the, us having diverse um, uh, situations, and also uh, uh, just the, just the difference in in, uh, in distance between the countries, and not having all the same situations, not having all the same resources with which to work. But the women's um, march, uh, the the world march of women, has really uh, succeeded in um, in creating a solidarity that's quite solid and a network that's quite solid. Um, each nation having a delegate. There's committee, the international committee that meets several times a year. Of course, with you know internet, I think that there's a there's you know it is it is it does help for uh, creating um, spaces to uh, to intervene with each other. But um, basically, yes, you know between nations there are differences. But in the end, if we look at what we're really talking about, the action areas: uh, poverty, uh, you know, economic autonomy, uh, violence against women, uh, peace. The, these are all um, these are all issues that are important in every country. And if, if I think that if internationally, feminists were able to sit down and agree on these action areas, because there's something that is in common in each area. But you know, it's kind of it's interesting though how there is also this. Um, a respect for each nation to adopt demands according to their own situation. For example, here in Quebec, we've added a fifth action area that um, is about the rights of Aboriginal women, um, where we specifically demand that the Canadian government um, sign the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and that guarantee the rights that are described in that uh, declaration, especially for uh, women and children. And, you know, it's not the same. It's not the case for other countries, but we were able to adopt that and include it in our own um, in our own plan in solidarity with the Aboriginal women. Okay, uh, just one last question, uh, sure. Diana. Uh, you, you've been uh, organizing these marches now for about over 10 years. Uh, how do you gauge the effectiveness of these uh, marches in terms of managing to effect real change? And and what uh, are your uh, what what do you see as uh, your prospects for the next one in I guess 2015? Well, um, for the future, exactly whether or not it will be 2015 or not, it, you know, I think that there are still some discussions that have to be had, but we're not in any way thinking of stopping either. Um, I think that the World March of Women has succeeded in creating a real network between women and, and on an international level, um, a network of feminists that's be- become quite strong. And I think that in itself is quite a success, that we are able to affirm a feminist standpoint on issues that touch women across the, con- across the, the planet. 
um, and it has allowed, uh, be, you know, between countries, for example, has allowed Quebec to be able to um, not only uh, support, uh, uh, you know, women in, 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 Congo, in the Congo, for example, but also to be able to witness what it is that they are experiencing, and it gives all the more credibility for them, and it could, it could help them with just the logistics or just their, their, um, their capacities to organize for, for themselves. Um, you know, in a time where globalization uh, is, is not a synonym for solidarity between peoples, I think that this w- women's movement has succeeded in creating a very strong solidarity between women and who are struggling to combat poverty and violence against women in general. Well, so, Dian- Diana, on yeah. that point, I'm going to have to leave it there, but I thank no you problem. very much for uh, sharing your perspective with us, and, and we'll see how things develop uh, yeah. over the next few weeks. That's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Oh, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Diana Lombardi. She is a coordinator at the Fédération des Femmes du Québec, and uh, which is one of the organizers of the 2010 World March of Women. Ava Gollinger is the winner of the International Award for Journalism in Mexico 2009 and has been named La Novia de Venezuela by President Hugo Chavez. Ava is a Venezuelan-American attorney from New York who has been living in Caracas, Venezuela since 2005 and has authored the best-selling books The Chavez Code, Cracking U.S. Intervention in Venezuela, and Bush vs. Chavez, Washington's War on Venezuela. Welcome to Alert, Ava. As we speak, you Thank are you in, very much. <laughs> as we speak, you are in Venezuela, so let's start there. Uh, we're going to ask you to comment on the results of the parliamentary elections there two weeks ago. Uh, Hugo Chavez's United Socialist Party won a majority of the seats, but not the two-thirds needed to pass new legislation. Uh, so first, and this is kind of a bit of a two-part question, how much of a blow is this to the Bolivarian Revolution? And secondly, how did the right-wing opposition party manage to get such a large number of votes? Okay, well, first I have to clarify the the PSUV, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, which is the pro-Chavez party that he leads, uh, did win an absolute majority. So actually, they, the party will be able to pass most legislation. There, there are just some particular uh, responsibilities of the parliament in Venezuela that only can be um, pushed forward with a two-thirds majority. But there, it, it's not the general um, overall, you know, majority of legislation. So in that sense, the the pro-Chavez party, PSUV, won 60% of the National Assembly with 98 seats out of 165, which is an absolute majority, because even though the opposition banded together in a coalition, they still ran as separate parties. And so the the next party that got the second highest number of seats only got 22 seats. So it's a substantial difference, and that's what we call the absolute majority is when it's that you know, different in terms of one party to the other party. And then, and then of course, the other parties have less than 22 seats. So, and even though they did come together for the election to um, elect basically unity, unity candidates, the opposition forces, they really don't share any similar political agenda or platform. So what we're expecting to happen once the new parliament uh, takes office in January 2011 is that the divisions amongst them will become more and more apparent. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, so in in one sense, it's a bittersweet victory for the pro-Chavez camp because it did win the majority. It is the largest win ever for any political party in Venezuela's history. Um, and, you know, it can't be compared to the prior elections in 2005 because all of the opposition parties boycotted. So they forfeited their seat. So it wasn't a fair election in the sense that you know, there was no judge to show how many seats they would have won. Whereas in the election prior to that in 2000, they did have around 83 seats. So this time around, they won 65. So they've actually gone down in numbers. And uh, the pro-Chavez PSUV party, which only has been in existence for three years, uh, definitely took you know a solid block in the parliament. And in the end, um, only things such as you know naming uh, Supreme Court justices or uh, certain types of laws that are not uh, obligatory legislation for the, you know, for the Chavez camp to, to really uh, initiate or implement over the following years. Those, that's what requires the two-thirds majority. But the rest of it, basic legislation, ambassadors, things like that, budget, all kinds of, you know, uh, approvals for Chavez's policies and social programs will be passed smoothly with the, with the absolute majority. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's definitely um, a sign that the opposition has regrouped and did, you know, take back some of the space that they had forfeited before. And, of course, it reinforces the fact that about 40 percent of the country, um, you know, supports some of the opposition positions. They voted for them. So, uh, but at the same time, it also reinforces that there's a, an, a, still an overwhelming majority for President Chavez and for his policies. And even though this wasn't a referendum on his presidency, and it certainly wasn't a vote on him, it was a vote for individual candidates, and, you know, I mean, it was parliamentary elections, so it can't be looked at in just one solid block of, of uh, pro-Chavez against opposition, even though, you know, that's how it's being interpreted. Many Venezuelans are astute and and smart, and they vote according to the candidate in their region and based on, you know, who do they best want to represent them and who do they believe will, you know, work in the best interest of their community. And unfortunately, what this reflects is that many of those that have been, in, you know, formed a part of um, the, the, the Chavez party or regional governments that then were chosen to run for office or Oh, you know, people that have been identified before with the Chavez government didn't get support in certain areas. And so that what's that what that has uh, resulted in is, well, one was opening the door again to having this right wing opposition. Some of who, some of the candidates were involved in the 2002 coup d'etat. Others have been involved in destabilization attempts. Most of them got foreign funding, mainly from the United States. You know, so there's questions about their commitments to democracy, uh, but the mere fact that people would vote for them also raises big concerns. And so just over the past few days, President Chavez has called upon his, his political party, the PSUV, and also communities nationwide to initiate a process of revision, reflection, uh, rectification of policies and programs that have gone wrong or haven't been, you know, fully implemented or correct errors. And it's incredibly important. So there's... The, the bittersweet victory has initiated a period of self-reflection, self-criticism, which we all hope will, in the end, you know, come out to the advantage of advancing the the process of social changes here in Venezuela. Okay, well, well, let's let's move on to uh, Ecuador. It's been a bit difficult for us to get a to get a clear picture of what's been happening there recently. So I was wondering if you'd be able to shed some light on what's been going on. 
Well, on Thursday, the September 30th, there was an attempted coup against President Rafael Correa and, in fact, an assassination attempt on his life. And the the incident uh, was provoked by a police protest. In, in Ecuador, the police is a national police force. And the police, uh, certain groups of police were allegedly protesting a law that had been passed the day before that they understood would cut their benefits. But, in fact, it was a restructuring of benefits and increased wages while, you know, reallocating some of the funds for bonuses and things like that into increasing, doubling, and tripling wages in, for police and military forces. But the, the confusion and ambiguity over the law was used by some political forces in the country, in Ecuador, to stir up uh, discontent amongst the police forces. They took to the streets and protested early Thursday morning. President Rafael Correa tried to go out and negotiate with them and explain to them, you know, what the law was really about, thinking that logic would uh, easily be understood by all. But he was unfortunately very mistaken. He was attacked by the police. They threw tear gas bombs at him and attacked him. And he was then sent to the hospital, military hospital, where even though he entered on his own will, he was subsequently sequestered and held against his will. And you know, as he put it, he was kidnapped by force. Um, and, and so what, what happened was as the event unfolded, people took to the streets in Ecuador within you know hours, minutes after the protest, uh, the police protest had started. And it was very scary because the you know police are out in the streets with arms, weapons, and they're protesting mm-hmm. against the government. And and so people supporting Correa came out into the streets, tens of thousands of them, demanding his release. The police wouldn't release him. And then some other political forces, opposition, right wing, but also from the far left. Unfortunately, some indigenous movements have a lot of political power there, but have been heavily infiltrated by you know right wing interests as well as. Uh, U.S. agencies began to call for Correa's uh, resignation and express their support for the coup. And so as the whole scenario got more and more dangerous into the late hours of the evening and regional presence rallied to support Correa, and actually everyone gathered in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, presidents from all over South America to you know, d- debate what, what they could do to mm-hmm. sol- help solve the situation. Um, Correa was rescued by a special forces team in a very violent exchange that resulted in what now the death total is around 10 people, mainly the police officers and military involved, and over 200 injured. Uh, he was rescued, and the country still has a state of emergency uh, in place through the rest of this week. Um, and there have been indications of you know different forces involved, political from within the country, as well as certain sectors and political groups and interests from the United States, primarily from the right wing, but still elements that are still in the U.S. government left over from the Bush administration and funding coming out of USAID and National Endowment for Democracy and other U.S. agencies fomenting the, the political crisis and the opposition to Correa in Ecuador. And I'll just add, you know, Ecuador, Correa won his first term at the end of 2006, took office in 2007. They uh, went through a whole constitutional process, uh, created a new constitutional uh, constitution, ratified it nationally in a referendum, and he ran again for election last year. And so uh, he won in 2009 with 55 percent of the vote. And in 2007, when he first came into office, uh, Correa aligned his country with other nations in the region, such as Venezuela and Bolivia and and Cuba, in in an alliance called the ALBA the Boulevard Alliance mm. for the Americas. And to date, uh, four countries already, including Ecuador, 
of this alliance have been targeted for coup d'etats over the past eight years that have been supported by U.S. interests. And just another important fact about Ecuador is that it is a major oil-producing country and was used to be a member of OPEC before governments got into place that withdrew its membership from the oil-producing oil producers uh, organization of producer, oil producing <laughs> nations. Um, Correa rejoined OPEC once he went office. So there have been a series of different incidents, and he's been, you know, restructuring the oil industry and nationalizing some industries and affecting very powerful interests. And so there have been plans underway now for several months to try to destabilize this government. Things are trying to get back to normal, but yeah, it's just still a very delicate situation. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got one time for one more very, very quick question. Uh, we wanted to move on to uh, Brazil. Uh, what's your take on the new president-elect, which is almost certain to be Dilma Rousseff? Is she pretty much a political clone of Lula, or does she bring a bit of a more radical politics to Brazil? Well, we have to wait until the actual elections take place to call her a president-elect. We all hope that that's what happens. Um, but certainly, you know, Brazil has the two-round system if they don't get over 51%. And, and she, while well, she did take a pretty solid majority of votes, she didn't reach the 51% mm -hmm. threshold. Um, elections, I believe, will be at the end of this month, the, the second round. And, yeah, she should win. I mean, the, it, it, definitely she will continue to pursue the policies of Lula. She may be a little more radical. It, it's interesting because the main reason why she didn't take the 51% majority is because uh, more than 20% of votes went to the Green Party, which I guess is considered to be a, even more progressive uh, than the Workers' Party, at, at least that's the way it, it sort of has been portrayed. And so those, obviously, most of those votes will go to Dilma, um, and maybe it will, yeah, somehow, you know, induce her to take on a little more radical politics. But it's very difficult in Brazil. Brazil, Lula has been an extraordinary president, but Brazil is a, a giant nation and uh, is one of the largest economies in the world and of course has very close relations with the United States and other wealthy nations. So even though Lula has implemented very progressive policies, it is definitely Brazil hasn't taken the same radical path uh, as countries like Venezuela, Ecuador, and Bolivia. Mm -hmm. And Dilma might mm, become closer to the Alba nations than, than Lula was. But certainly okay. it'll be a great victory. And we're all looking forward to having a female president, a woman president in Brazil. Well, well, thanks. That's all. Unfortunately, it's all the time we have. But uh, okay. thank you for sharing your insights. Um, all right. Okay. So Alert has been speaking with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Eva Gollinger about the recent political events in Venezuela, Ecuador, and Brazil. This is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week's show is a little different from most shows that we've done here. Mostly we do political songs and social activist songs. and It's all folk music, of course. And one of the things about folk music is that folk music is really known for its storytelling. And I love that part of folk music probably more than anything else. And so today, this week's show is about storytelling and, and good storytelling and careful storytelling and well-brilliantly written storytelling. And so to start off, here is Andy Cohn with the traditional song, Talkin' Casey. This is the story of Casey Jones. He was a mighty engineer. 
train was never late, it was never early, it was always on time except for one time and that was the last time because that time he was waiting for train time and his wife must have been having a bad time. She must have felt something was going to go bad wrong. So she went to him in the South Memphis yard where he lay asleep, hollered up into the window of his cab. She said, Casey! Casey Jones, don't leave me here. Casey Jones, don't leave me here. Had about 17 little kids. They all said, Daddy, Daddy, don't leave us here. Daddy, don't leave us here. That was too much for Casey. He told his fireman, hit the bell. Let's go. Out of the South Memphis Yard. You know, after you get out of the South Memphis Yard, it's right near where Elvis's house is, and it's got a big, long curve, length of track, goes in and out of the yard, about four and a half miles long, goes all the way to Germantown, then it makes a right-handed bend, all the way over to Jackson, Tennessee. That's where Casey was going. Well, you know, every time the train goes in or out of the yard on that track, it's going to push the rails apart just a little bit further. Casey's train goes over that track, it sounds like this. And it hits a straightaway. Picking up speed. Getting some steam, making some good time. Everybody along the track knew Casey by the sound of his whistle. Going along. You know, after a while, Casey ran up on some sheeps. He blowed his whistle for him to get off the track. They wouldn't get off the track. He had to stop his train and run him off. This is Casey putting on his air brake. his train. He walked along the track to where the sheeps was. He said, go home, sheep. You got no business on my railroad track. So the sheeps went home, and Casey turned around. He went walking back to his cab. He's walking back to his engine. He's talking about them sheep, because they made him late. Doggone them sheep. Doggone them sheep. Doggone them sheep. And he got back in his cab, and he began to run his engine pretty fast. running his engine so fast, you know, he's got to make up his time. He's running his engine so fast, looked like the big driving wheels in back catch up with the little pony trucks in front. Everybody along the track knowed Casey by the sound of his whistle. coming. They heard him coming so fast till they thought he was going to have a wreck, crying, Lord have mercy, save me, Lord. (laughs) 
Ontario. 
with the black flies, the little black flies, always the black fly, no matter where you go, I'll die with the black fly, picking my balls in North Ontario, in North Ontario, and the black flies, the little black flies, always the black fly, no matter where you go, I'll die with the black fly, picking my balls in North Ontario, in North Ontario. Oh, me name is Mick McGuire, and I'll quickly tell to you of a young girl I admired, name of Katie Donahoe. She's fair and fat and forty, and believe me when I say, every time I go a courting her, I can hear her mammy say, Johnny, get up from the fire, get up and give your man a sight. Can't you see it's Mr. Maguire and he's courting your sister Kate? You know very well he owns a farm a wee bit out of town. Get up out of that shit, impotent brat, and let Mr. Maguire sit down. Now the first place that I met her was at the fair of Tandrigi, and I asked her very politely if she'd dance a step with me. I asked if I could see her home, if I was going her way. I no sooner got inside the door and I heard her mammy say, Johnny, get up from the fire, get up and give your man a seat. Can't you see it's Mr. McGuire and his courting your sister Kate? You know very well he owns a farm a wee bit out of town. Get up out of that shit, impotent brat, and let Mr. McGuire sit down. Ah, but now that we are married, sure, my mother's changed her mind Because I spent a legacy my father left behind She hasn't got the decency to bid me time a day Whenever I step inside the door I can hear the soul and say Johnny, pull up to the fire, pull up, you're sitting in the draft it's only Al McGuire and he nearly drives me daft I don't know why Katie took him for he's always on the tear Or a sit where you are and never you dare to give Al McGuire the chair I don't know why Katie took him for he's always on the tear Or a sit where you are and never you dare to give Al McGuire the chair That was Sean Doyle with Mrs. McGuire, and before that, the incomparable Wade Hemsworth with Black Flies. Next week, we're going to be back to the class struggle and working class politics, but this week, we're telling stories. Thanks very much. See you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Gonick. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. 
Around the Left in Seven Days was prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. A special thank you to CKUW 95.9 FM for providing alert this week with their production facilities. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.